traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected. CannabisRadio.com presents NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. The National Cannabis Industry Association is the only national trade organization representing the businesses of the legal cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice covers a range of topics, including the rapidly evolving political and policy changes that affect our industry, news and events of importance to cannabis professionals, and features on companies, individuals, and campaigns at the cutting edge of the cannabis industry. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice begins now. Hello, thanks for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore. I'm the Deputy Director of Communications at the National Cannabis Industry Association. Today, my guest is Michael Williamson, who currently serves as Director of Cultivation for PIP Horticulture and Chief Operating Officer for Catalyst BC, and is a legacy licensed cannabis operator and pioneer in vertical farming. Michael relocated to Denver, Colorado in 2009 and co-founded and operated Kind Love, an award-winning and vertically integrated medical cannabis company. Then in 2013, co-founded Greenhouse Industries, which was then acquired by Pip Horticulture in 2018. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start by getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, Let's talk about your background and experience before getting involved in the cannabis industry, things that you did before moving into this really exciting space. Sure. Um, you know, before cannabis, I was probably about 12 years old. So, um, but before, um, <laughs> but before, you know, working as an owner operator in a legal cannabis industry, um, I was in the pharmaceutical industry um, and I worked for a major pharmaceutical company um, that's pretty well known around the world. And we mainly were focusing on a multiple sclerosis uh, treatment. And I wasn't so much on the sales side as I was on the uh, I helped them revamp a lot of kind of um, failing patient advocacy programs um, and did a lot of mentorship and coaching of folks that were going through um, kind of a newly diagnosis of MS and also a little bit with fibromyalgia and a couple seizure disorders. And uh, just, you know, really spent a lot of time traveling around the country, uh, giving educational talks or, or some people may say motivational speeches and just kind of really coaching people through uh, being newly diagnosed with a, with a lifelong um, you know, diagnosis. Um, my education uh, is from the University of Central Florida. I've got a degree in biology um, and I um, thought I was gonna be going into uh, potentially more of a medical background and then went through some personal health issues that kind of made me very passionate about the MS community. 
Wow, thanks for sharing that. And, and with that background, it certainly sets you up uh, to work in the cannabis industry, which is which has always pretty much from the get go, uh, uh, at least for the last few decades, started as a, a medical patient advocacy movement before it became an adult use industry for sure. So where along that road did you decide to get involved in the cannabis industry, the movement, take the leap and, and join this industry that, as we know, is still federally illegal? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, and as I mentioned, I think I was a lot like most teenagers, um, you know, was kind of experimenting with cannabis uh, as, as a young teenager. Um, but I didn't really look at it as medicine, or I didn't think about it as medicine until I um, went through um, what was ended up being a, a misdiagnosis of multiple sclerosis with myself. So at the age of 16, um, I woke up one morning and I was paralyzed from the waist down for about a month. Mm. And at that time, they said you had, I had transverse myelitis. It was a one-time event. I retaught myself how to walk and, and jump and run and got back into sports and kind of all those normal things that we take for granted in life, especially at that age, um, and went on living my life. At the age of 18, I woke up one morning with double vision. I ended up having a grand mal seizure and I ended up being paralyzed again. And at that time they said, Michael, you have multiple sclerosis. And I said, okay, like, let's, let's, let's deal with this. They put me on an interferon beta B drug. Um, that was a injectable drug that I took, you know, I was going to take every day or every other day for the rest of my life. Um, that drug came with some side effects and some of that was nausea and lack of energy and pain and, and a few other things. And after trying a bunch of alternative therapies and pharmaceutical therapies, cannabis always came to the top of being the most effective. Um, and a lot of questions that I would get back then is like, do you feel normal? And I would always say, no, this is definitely not normal. But cannabis was the most normal um, component of my life um, after being diagnosed. And so that's kind of was the catalyst that kind of pushed me into the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I saw that there was a lot of room for improvement and I saw that there was an opportunity to help people. But on my journey of helping people and speaking around the country, a lot of people would come to me after my talks and they'd say, hey, by the way, I just wanna let you know, they're like, you seem cool. It'd be kind of like their little icebreaker. Um, and I was obviously very young. Um, they're like, I want you to know that I'm using cannabis and I'm getting great relief. And depending on what state I was in, and even it really didn't even matter, but one of my questions back to them was always, do you know your farmer? Do you know where this product was grown? Because if you don't, because mind you, this is like the early 2000s. If you don't and you have a compromised immune system, there's a decent chance that you may be inhaling some additional things other than cannabis, such as pesticides or fungicides that you know potentially you think you're getting temporary relief from. But as a community, I can't, I don't know what happens when you ignite, um, you know, um, a, a compromised product and then inhale it into your lungs. So it was something that, I saw that the majority of the MS community was coming to me privately and saying that they were using cannabis for relief. And so was I, and I was keeping it a secret. Um, and basically that was kind of a changing point for me. And I said, I'm no longer gonna keep this a secret. I, people need to know about this and they need to be educated on the difference between safe cannabis as medicine and you know, um, you know, traditional market or black market cannabis. And that was, that was, that was kind of, about the time where I kind of switched out of pharmaceuticals and went 100% in the cannabis industry. And that was, yeah, 2009. Wow. Yeah. It, you, you make a great point. Um, before the regulated industry 
analytical lab testing was not a part of the picture, which like you suggested, fungus and pesticides and heavy metals and other types of toxins are typically not a good idea for people with chronic conditions who are trying to use cannabis. So once again, one of the benefits of the legal regulated market is we do have that laboratory testing to, to show us uh, that it's safe and that the processes from the farmer, like you're saying, are, are regulated in such a way to prevent those kinds of toxins from being in something that you're going to consume as medicine. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that story um, and, and for your advocacy work with people with MS and chronic conditions as well. Uh, so now um, you're, you're in it. You're, you're director of cultivation for pit horticulture and very active in the cannabis industry, particularly on the cultivation side. So let's let's dive into a little bit more about what you're doing now uh, in the present here in 2021, working with PIP Horticulture. Sure. Um, yeah, I've been with PIP for about three years now. And, um, you know, I think anytime you're selling a company, it's like an exciting and nervous time. And so we had kind of cross paths with PIP and came to this, you know, realization that they had a lot of strengths um, that we didn't possess. And we had a lot of strengths that they didn't possess. Um, so we had some patents on some mobile trays that went into pallet racking and they were kind of like the mobile storage pallet racking leaders uh, in the country. And so um, they didn't have a lot of intimacy into the cannabis space and myself and my partners all had a ton because we've been living and breathing it for over a decade each. And so, um, literally, you know, literally. And so, and I know that we, we talked about this previously, but you know, one year in cannabis, it's almost like a dog year, you know, it's like, it's almost mm -hmm. like seven years. So we say that all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, we were able to kind of um, all ships rise in the tide, so to speak, and, and really kind of a, a strength in strategic numbers. And our popularity with uh, our company, Greenhouse Industries, was gaining quite a bit, especially with the LED um, kind of transformation that happened about 2015, 2016. Um, we were not going to be able to keep up with our demand at Greenhouse. And our relationship with PIP allowed us to, you know, serve more more patients, I'm sorry, more clients than kind of ever before. And they weren't too West Coast and not too East Coast. They're kind of uh, right there in the middle in, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they have incredible manufacturing and in-house engineering. And, you know, it just seemed like a, a match made in heaven. So Pip Mobile is the, is the parent company. They created an entire division uh, created for horticulture. So that's Pip Horticulture today. And you know, we did talk to some of their competition early on because they wanted to talk to us as well. And, you know, PIP for me was 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 the right partner then and is the right partner today. Um, they weren't shy about embracing the cannabis industry, which as being a longtime operator in the cannabis space was really critical for me. I didn't want someone who was like not going to put it on their website or, you know, be um, edit the language or, you know, be more reserved about it. I've always fully embraced it. And so that's, I think, a big part of the connection that uh, Greenhouse and PIP have together is there's there's nothing embarrassing about what we do. And we're proud to, and grateful and honored to serve uh, the cannabis industry. Um, my day-to-day -day is it fluctuates uh, over at PIP. It, early on, it was a lot of educational stuff. 
um, just getting sales teams and engineering teams and a lot of strategy and talking about new product development. Um, as you guys probably know in the cannabis industry, it's great when you have a good product, um, but you have to kind of keep your edge. And so we're constantly trying and experimenting with all kinds of different um, ancillary products or trying to improve upon existing products and also trying to create opportunities in other markets of cannabis like leafy greens or um, microgreens, um, potted herbs, um, and even some residential and home kind of um, abilities for those states that have uh, those legal laws. Awesome. Great. Well, we appreciate your membership with NCIA as well. And we're going to take our first commercial break and then come back and chat with you a bit more. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be right back. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio, and we're joining my guest, Michael Williamson, uh, Director of Cultivation for PIP Horticulture. So, Michael, you've been in the cannabis game for a while compared to many others. We made the joke about cannabis dog years as well. 2009 was like a million years ago, back when Colorado and California were much different landscapes. Like I alluded to, there was a medical patient focused caregiver law sort of landscape. And then it evolved into vertically integrated adult use companies starting in 2014 and so on. So you've seen the structure of these laws, state laws, change many times over the years. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, you know, early on when we got started, there wasn't vertical integration. And I don't want to say it was a free-for-all, but there was so much unknown and copycat stuff. And, you know, they, they would use the word gray, oh, it's a gray area. You know, commonly you'd hear this, oh, it's a gray area. And wasn't it? thing, but it wasn't a bad thing either. It just meant that there was a lot more um, legislation that needed to clarify certain categories. Um, but I recall when vertical integration came to Colorado and it was met with a lot of resistance from people. They said, this isn't fair. How am I going to be able to afford to, you know, if they were a retail dispensary, which we were at the time, um, how are we going to ever afford a cultivation facility? and an extraction facility and all this stuff. And, you know, that's on our skill set. I personally, and my business partners at the time, we welcomed integration with open arms. I was at a point where I was getting pretty frustrated with dealing with, as you mentioned, caregivers and some of these vendors. And, and there's some great caregivers out there, so I don't want to discredit anyone. But if, if you, back when this is so medically focused, um, if you have someone coming to your retail storefront and they're asking you your level of confidence, 
on the product that you're selling and you have people that are growing this in their in their home, their basement, their barn, wherever, um, and you have to take all of what they're telling you on faith and trust, it's concerning. Um, as we kind of highlighted earlier, you know, the majority of caregivers and, you know, um, people that kind of fall into that home grow category, they're generally doing it for one thing and generally one thing only, and that's money. And so if it's about the money and let's say you have, I don't know, let's say you have some spider mites or you have some aphids and all of a sudden your money is become, is about to become compromised. Um, you most likely will do whatever it takes to ensure that that product isn't compromised. And so um, this is where corners get cut. And so vertical integration for us became something very welcome because we gained control over our supply chain. If we didn't like something, we changed it. If the demand shifted at the retail level, then we shifted. And I think long story short, with all the changes that are constantly thrown at people, um, you just have to be adaptable. You have to be flexible. You have to know when to push back and when not to push. Um, you have to be creative um, and you have to pick and choose your battles. That makes a lot of sense, absolutely. Um, so these requirements and regulations over the years have evolved and even our technology and methods have evolved and become a lot more sophisticated in this industry, which is a good thing. So we've gone from busting out of our greenhouses to multiple tiers of plants growing in larger buildings or busting out of our barns <laughs> um, into, into sophisticated facilities. So let's, let's talk about that and how it is impacting the landscape of our industry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I kind of look at the industry as almost having kind of two products. Um, so I kind of, you know, there's greenhouse products and they very much have a place in the market and there's indoor products as well. Um, and sometimes people try and do greenhouse greenhouses in areas that just really aren't designed for greenhouse production. Um, but I do see that there's a value in both. Um, as far as, you know, on the indoor multi-tier vertical side, like I said, once that new form factor came with the LED and influence kind of led the charge there, I want to say maybe 2015 or so, um, that changed the game for vertical multi-tiered farming. When we were building our 90,000 square foot indoor facility in 2013 for Kind Love, uh, LED wasn't there at the time. And so I went with um, double-ended HPS bulbs in, um, in the flower rooms, but in the bedroom, we are already kind of stacking stuff. And because the plant structure is shorter, again, LEDs weren't there. So we're using T5 fixtures, but I kept looking at our ceiling height. And I said to myself, you know, it just seems like in this big space growing on one single tier, we're really like missing the big picture here. And so at the time, because the technology wasn't there yet, I said, well, let's minimize our vegetative footprint as much as we can. And that'll allow for more flowering rooms and more flowering rooms is always, is always good for the bottom line. Um, but now that we have these full spectrum LEDs that work in you know, all stages, um, we've seen people do, cultivators do incredible things. So you know, a lot of people talk about two tiers, but I've seen many cultivators at three tiers um, successfully. I've seen some cultivators at four and five tiers successfully. And so now all of a sudden we start to look at um, kind of the financial ramifications of being at this many tiers in the same amount of space as let's say a single tiered cultivator. Um, 
And at the end of the day, one of the beautiful things about PIP and multi-tiered farming is let's say I have a single tier um, flower room and my general um, tray or bench ratio to actual space when you calculate um, working aisles and, and mobile aisles and, and kind of circulation space is generally like 65 to 100. So 65% of that is canopy and 100 out of, a, out, of, out, of the, out of the room. If I go to a double tier, it's about 130% of that room is canopy. So now just by going to two tiers, you've not only doubled the amount of output, but you've created 30% more space that physically doesn't exist in a single tier operation. And then we start talking about three tiers, we get to like 180%. So you're literally creating space that in a single plane of cultivation simply doesn't exist. Absolutely. I, I've seen examples of in, in a few in a few facilities and on our expo floor trade shows as well, um, which I'm really glad are coming back later this year in September and December and CIA's trade shows. Get on that expo floor and check out the multiple tiers. Um, it's, it's really cool to see the advancement of technology. And as companies are designing and, and refining how, how their companies run, what are your thoughts on evolving into a multi-state operator or even multinational cannabis company? Sure. Um, you know, there's, I guess there's, there's kind of two questions in that. Um, I guess the first question is, is in my mind is, there's people out there that are looking to be acquired by a multi-state operator, but then there's also people or groups out there that are trying to be a multi-state operator. And the two are very different. Um, but the first one, let's say, let's say you started a company, you got a license, you're, you're kind of new to this, but you, you know that you are looking to have a, a successful exit in the next, I don't know, three to five years. And you think that, you know, your best approach is to appeal to a multi-state operator. Well, one of the first things that you want to do beyond cultivation is you want to get a significant retail footprint. It seems like there's some common trends. If you look at kind of some of the acquisitions, um, they generally like a decent cultivation facility and extraction and all that, but they're looking for someone that generally has, I don't know, three, five, 10 stores because the retail footprint is a big part of kind of, of, of the brand and, and making sure that product can uh, move efficiently. Um, you're not sitting on product and you kind of have that, you know, guaranteed outlet, that final miles figured out. Um, so, but that being said, if you're like, I want to sell to a multi-state operator and you're simply just a cultivator, it may be a harder path without some retail supporting your, your endeavors. Um, the other thing to take into consideration, if you'd like to sell to a multi-state operator would be, well, how are they growing? What are the tools and systems that they're using? Because they're looking for consistency state to state, not just consistency in how they grow their products, but consistency in everything. You know, they're floating regional managers and all this stuff all over the place. And if each growth facility they have is so different, it creates uh, compounding um, challenges and issues. And so the more stuff that's uniform. So uh, PIP has several multi-state operators um, that have, you know, done dozens of projects with and we're starting to see some consistency there you know they generally will pick the same lighting they'll pick the same racking they may pick the same fertigation system the same environmental control system um, because it's easier to manage something that is the same across multiple locations um, for people that are trying to become a multi-state operator 
Um, you know, it's really, I guess it starts with licensing. Um, you need to really be on top of your licensing game. Um, it's a much cheaper route if you can win a license versus pay for a license in most circumstances. Um, so I think the licensing component is really critical. Um, you also are probably going to need to have a house of brands. Um, and then you need to have all the other stuff too, right? You need to have the cultivation, the retail, you need to have extraction, you need to be attracted to them. Um, and so and you have to be able to compete with these big players and, you know, mm -hmm. they've got the scale part figured out. I think a lot of them are still working on the craft or the quality component. Um, but I assure you in time, whether it's through improvement in design or process that they will learn how to grow a higher quality and higher consistent product over time. Yeah, that makes sense. And and as as more and more states are coming online, I, I think we'll begin to see more states uh, copy the regulations, just copy paste instead of trying to reinvent the wheel every single time. Uh, let's take our last commercial break and then we'll wrap up our conversation with Michael Williamson from PIP Horticulture. Stay tuned, everyone. We'll be right back. NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. <laughs> they have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Get informed, get inspired, and get connected with more of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice only on CannabisRadio.com. All right, we're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore, chatting with Michael Williamson, Director of Cultivation for PIP Horticulture. Before the break, we were talking a bit about multi-state operators in cannabis, possibly even multinational as other countries are also legalizing cannabis for either medical mostly, but hopefully adult use as well. But on the other side of that, I mean, even here at NCIA and, and many others share this view that there will certainly be the huge multi-state operators like the quote unquote Walmart or Target of cannabis or whatever, but also the craft family owned mom and pop boutique cannabis companies, kind of like the craft brew industries is, is what we akin it to and everything in between. Do you share that view? Of course, and I think we're already seeing it today. Um, it'll be, let's see, I guess the first thing to say is you just have to look at other industries and you highlighted a really great one, like the brewing company, you know, uh, the brewing industry. And you're in Colorado, I believe, which has a, you know, one of the kind of earlier states to really tap into the craft brew scene. And, you know, there's a value there. There's also a value to saying, hey, this product was made and grown and extracted and all those things like 30 minutes from, from where we live. 
So there's that local component. So craft and local, I think, are always strong and resonate specifically well with like millennials and kind of all the generations under that as well. Um, another interesting trend that I started to see is some of the MSOs are actually interested in buying craft. They, they kind of have acknowledged that, hey, you know, we're, we're kind of the big elephant in the room and we're learning how to improve the quality of our product. We have scale mostly, you know, in place and, and we're, 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 we're figuring that out and we're dialing it in or, or tuning it up. Um, but some of them are realizing that it may be just more efficient for some of their, you know, they usually have a house of brands where they have multiple brands, but they're actually just, some of them are starting to look into acquiring craft, craft cultivators. So instead of being kind of taken out by the little, the, by the big guy, um, you're now kind of being supported and they're not trying to change stuff either. They say, Hey, you just keep doing what you do. We just want to put this under our umbrella or our house of brands. So yeah, that, kind of, that makes sense. Yeah. And I, and I think craft is here to stay. I mean, I'm, I'm a disgruntled um, medical patient uh, for the last decade. It's actually what inspired me to start Kind Love. I was really disappointed with the quality of product on the market. I was disappointed with the conversations around, you know, at the retail level. Um, I'm still disappointed on a pretty regular basis, state to state, on how product is communicated, how product is post treated and post-harvest. And so um, I think there'll always be a need for craft. We've never historically ever had any challenges selling high quality cannabis. Um, it's when it falls into that kind of middle range, uh, it can be a little bit frightening. Um, and then, you know, when cannabis is really cheap, people buy it too. So sometimes it's not always a qualitative thing, but it, you have kind of a full spectrum. You have people who want as much THC for as cheap as possible. And hopefully there's some terpenes in the mix. Uh, but then you also, have, you also have people that could care less about total cannabinoid content and are just chasing flavor, unique experiences. A lot of times we associate that with like, living organic soil grows and maybe solventless extracted products. Um, and there's, you know, is it the market? No, but is it a, is it a significant portion of the market? It's growing. Um, and I don't think it's going to go away. Totally. I think I'm aging myself a bit, just going back 20 years, like remembering middies <laughs> from the illicit market, right? There was, there was the chronic or kind bud you could get for more money. Uh, but then there was just, you know, whatever, something better than brickweed, right? Yeah. Hey, you, you, you were lucky if you had middies. Um, a lot of people had regs, you know, you spend <laughs> Pick, more picking out the seeds from the plastic bag. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, normally you like, you, normally you like the ritual of kind of breaking down product and rolling a joint. And I don't have a lot of memories of the regs days, but it seemed like it was, there was something relaxing about picking all those seeds and stems out of your product and then, you know, lighten it up. That's a ritual for sure. And to your other point, um, millennials and the younger generations are realizing that their dollars, kind of voting with their dollars, sharing their values with their dollars. So they would prefer to purchase from companies with, um, you know, sustainability goals or other types of um, give back to the community goals or mom and pops for sure, rather than, rather than going to, you know, a bigger, you know, uh, factory type of um, grow situation or, or dispensary situation as well. Absolutely. And as we're wrapping up the show here, I got to say, as I mentioned earlier, our trade shows are coming back after this long 
this long pandemic and um, not being able to get on the expo floor, not being able to physically attend educational panel sessions since our last show in February of 2020 when we were in Boston, we're really excited to bring our trade shows back. So in September, we will be in Detroit, Michigan for our Midwest Cannabis Business Conference. And then in December, we've packed two shows in. We're having our Eastern Cannabis Business Conference in Baltimore in early December. And then a week later, clear across the country in San Francisco, our seventh annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo will be at the Moscone Center in mid-December. So uh, Expo booth sales are still happening. You can secure your space speaker applications for those educational panels I mentioned are being accepted through May 24th. So get those proposals in and, you know, start practicing your toe tapper, elbow bumper, fist bumper, whatever the new thing's going to be, right? <laughs> totally. And uh, I know that I think I signed up for a speaker uh, event for Detroit and I know that PIP will be in Detroit as well. And yeah, we're excited to get back in front of people I think for end users, you know, you can browse the internet and you can do all this stuff, but sometimes you got to get your hands on it and you got to see it in person. And, uh, you know, I know from manning pit booths for a while, people are always really impressed with the quality and how easy it is to like roll our racks. And you just can't get that same experience over the phone or through the website. Totally true. Well, where can people find out more about pit horticulture? pithorticulture.com. Uh, they're on Instagram as well. Um, and cool. yeah, we're going to be hitting up as many trade shows as we can get into. And we're kind of excited, but yeah, PIP is not, we're not, we're not hard to find. So we've got a great team of in-house and, and um, you know, out of house um, team members who are kind of ready and able to help you out with everything from looking at facility designs, um, advising you on kind of just general optimization and layouts and um, I've been really impressed, like I said, with kind of the, the team that PIP has put together and, and how much they do for prospective clients who haven't actually, you know, committed to PIP. They, they do quite a bit over at PIP. So uh, it's a great resource if you're working on an application or you're new to the industry and you kind of just need some, some guidance. Excellent. Thanks so much. And thanks everybody for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. Until next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.